trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, you really have a choice in this world. You can, uh, you know, kowtow, bend the knee, and uh, submit to groupthink, or you can do as I would like you to do, and that is uh, revel in wrongthink. It's your choice, mind you. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com joins me, and uh, I think we will be reveling in some wrongthink today, right, Eric? Oh, certainly. We won't be buying like sheep either. Well, uh, there's a, there's an awful lot going on. Um, at some point, I'd like to get your take on Fauci coming down with, with COVID. That's uh, definitely a topic of discussion. But something you mentioned before we went on the air, and that mm-hmm. is we are likely very close to uh, an announcement from the Supreme Court on a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. What's the scuttlebutt mm-hmm. that you're hearing? Well, the, the court's about to go into recess, and uh, apparently the decision, whatever it's going to be, has already been reached, and uh, we know based on that leaked memo that it looks like it's going to be uh, in opposition to Roe versus Wade. And all that means, of course, is that uh, the federal so-called right to abortion will have been vacated, and it will be up to the states to determine what they're going to do. But the broader point is, if if there is any uh, diminishment, whatever, of Roe versus Wade, the usual suspects, meaning the woke leftists, are going to go berserk. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're already what I will call Soros pallets of bricks and cinder blocks and whatnot placed in strategic locations at cities all around the country so as to facilitate more peaceful protests uh, to come. And that could happen any time, and people should be aware of it. I think particularly people who have the misfortune to live near any major city, because probably we are going to see uh, some form of unrest, and it could get really ugly, I think. No, it's I mean, this was this was the big threat. In fact, it was actually action when Trump was first elected. I I know it's been a while, but people forget. I I remember vividly seeing, oh, look, there are cars burning. That's not a good sign Mm -hmm. just because the left was upset that Trump had been elected. I remember, Mm -hmm. you know, the the riots that took place through most of, uh, I guess, June and beyond of 2020 following uh, the death of George Floyd. But somehow. You and I are supposed to believe that the only real threat out there is people who wandered around in the uh, U.S. Capitol, you know, on January 6th of 2021. That was the real problem. Of course, and uh, where nobody was killed, uh, except, of course, for one of the the people there who was murdered by one of the cops there. Um, But, you know, note that we've already had an assassination attempt against the sitting Supreme Court justice, which has been, you know, memory hold by the leftist media because they don't want people to, to think about that a little bit. And we've had wink, wink, nod, nod by people like Chuck Schumer and others in uh, high authority, essentially letting the woke leftists know uh, on the street, hey, we are actually uh, okay with you guys peacefully protesting, that is, trashing cities, attacking people, and so on, if things don't go the way that you want them to go. That, that is characteristic of the left. Uh, it, it's, I can't recall a time when anybody on the libertarian side of the fence or even the uh, even the conservative side of the fence burned down a city uh, or attacked people, women and children, uh, and so on, uh, just because they were upset about some political decision. No, it's. I think it's a very real threat. And look, I know this is going to sound conspiratorial to some, but I have to wonder, 
if this isn't a deliberate provocation on the part of the left and those who fund them, like Soros and others in that mover and shaker crowd, trying to provoke some kind of violent reaction from the right so they can say, see, mm-hmm. this is why we have to crack down. This is why we have to take everybody's guns. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what this is all about. And once again, I, you know, I want to make a reiterated point that was made the other day by someone else, which I thought was very enlightening and very informative, which is when you want to talk about things like gun crime, which the left loves to talk about all the time, visualize a map of the United States, and you'll find that almost all of the gun crime happens in big cities like Chicago and D.C., where, guess what, liberal woke people, uh, Democrats, are in charge, and uh, there's a lot of gun control. If you excise that uh, from the map, it turns out that the rest of the United States is actually quite a peaceful and safe place to be. Very true. And and for those of us who are fortunate enough to live in, in rural areas, life is pretty normal. We don't see a lot of the, the nonsense that unfortunately is, is part of life in the big cities. It seems like the taller the buildings get, the crazier the behavior gets. Sure. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Skinner box phenomenon, uh, the reference there being to that experiment where you put too many rats or mice in a confined space and then they don't have enough room to move and enough to eat and, and they start to tear each other to pieces. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm kind of a, a modern Jeffersonian in that I agree and think that density is a bad thing, that it, it uh, undermines civilization. Which ironically, you think that, well, a city is the, the epicenter of civilization. Look, they've got all these restaurants and stores and yada, yada, yada. But cities are less civilized. There's less civility in cities. People are less polite to one another. Uh, you're more likely to be attacked, robbed, gypped, whatever you, whatever, you know, it may be that's negative. Whereas in these less dense areas out in the country, people tend to be uh, more accommodating, more amiable, and uh, more honest and straightforward. And life is generally better out there. So, you know, that's, a, I think, an important philosophical take-home point, demographically speaking. Well, I I just tell uh, I, I have one son who lives in a very major population center, and I just tell him, look, I'm, I don't want you to go around living your life in in paranoia. You don't have to run everywhere in three mm-hmm. to five second dashes, you know, trying to seek cover, but mm-hmm. you do have to be more aware. the The potential for people blocking the road as part of a protest and so forth is much higher in those concentrated areas of population. And, and you gotta, you gotta have a plan. If you find yourself caught in traffic, mm-hmm. it's too late at that point, usually to do something. Yeah. Crowds are inherently dangerous. You know, mob psychology takes over individual people who are ordinarily thoughtful, uh, and, and considered and, and civilized and decent behaving sometimes will transform into something quite the opposite of that. If they're swept up by the hysteria of a mob. Yeah, well, and, and I saw an example of this uh, actually just a couple of days ago, and I, I think this may have actually had to do with the Juneteenth celebration in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was either there, maybe it was Philadelphia. Anyway, it was a bunch of uh, youth jumping all over a car, and, and the, the mm-hmm. amazing thing was the video that you could you could see the, the expression on the face of this elderly man driving the car. It was utmost, it was just horror. He was frozen mm-hmm. in terror and not sure what to do. And, you know, I, my heart goes out to him, but if you find yourself in that situation, um, it's, it's probably because you weren't paying close enough attention to the conditions around you. Absolutely. And that circles us back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the program, which is to be aware of developing political uh, stories and events that could result in something that could be potentially dangerous for you. So, you know, if you're somebody who has to work in a city or in an urban area, 
uh, be aware that this decision could be made public at any moment and uh, it could trigger something quite ugly. And you might want to think about making contingency plans and thinking what you're going to do if you do find yourself caught up in that. Let's take a moment here and let's let's talk about some some practical survival advice. I know some people think it's paranoia, but man, I look at all the all the um, overlapping crises that are coming together right now, and I'm not going to fault anybody for for trying to better their situation. Sure, right. One of the things that we did recently, uh, which was I think very apt for our situation, was to get a dog. I haven't had a dog since my lab died back in 2013. It kind of you know, really broke my heart. It's hard for me to even think about getting another one. But my girlfriend persuaded me that it would be who of us to do that. So we recently got a, a Lab Shepherd mix, and we got him for a couple of reasons. One, because we have poultry, and we have foxes, and we have bears. And the mere presence of a dog is um, a, a, a countermeasure against that. It's a kind of defense policy. These predators are aware of a dog in the vicinity and will be less likely to, uh, to eat your flock. But the other thing is, that having a dog in the house is a is a is a is a is a great kind of burglar alarm in the sense that he will wake you up if something is not right uh, in the house or outside of the house, and give you that vital time to maybe grab your gun or whatever you need to do to to avoid being victimized. And when you live out in a rural area like I do, you know, there's a saying that when seconds count, cops are minutes away. Right. You know, even in even in normal times, even in insane times. Uh, if somebody, if OJ starts coming through my window in the middle of the night and I pick up the phone to dial 911, the crime historian, that's what I call cops, will be there in about a half hour, maybe. <laughs> well, and it doesn't help some of the stuff that's coming out, even about uh, the Uvalde school shooting. You know, now we're starting yeah. to see video evidence that uh, cops were in the school within three minutes of the shooter going yeah. in with rifles, yeah. with a ballistic shield, and yet inexplicably, they did nothing for, for the better part of an hour as he was uh, going around killing those kids. You know, it well, just sure, because it's the a mind. job for them. I mean, I'm not disparaging them as a class, but uh, and, and there are certainly brave people in law enforcement. So I, I want to be clear about that. But at the end of the day, it's a job for them. And I think uh, the priority for them is to avoid being killed and to come home to their families, uh, not necessarily to sacrifice their lives for the sake of you and your family. And that's the bottom line. And it's a cold fact that we're ultimately, we're responsible for ourselves and we're responsible for our own families. And, you know, if things do get worse and I expect them to get worse, I think it's going to be even less likely that we're going to be able to call upon these structural resources such as police. To come Hold to that thought. Aid. Hold that thought. We'll be back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, as we went to the break, uh, I I wanted you to be able to finish your thought about, uh, look, you're Mm -hmm. not trying to disparage police, but if people believe, well, the police are there to protect me, Mm -hmm. they're they're missing out on something very important, and that is in your moment of need, they can't magically teleport to your side simply by you dialing 911. That's Correct. And uh, as we were getting into before the break, the other thing is that in abnormal times, such as the times that we live in, it's increasingly likely that we cannot depend on these these structural institutional things that uh, in better times were there to help us. I think that if 
localities start to lose the ability to pay for public services and things just start to come unglued. Uh, more and more, we are going to have to accept the fact that we are ultimately responsible for ourselves, for protecting ourselves, and for protecting our families, our neighbors, and our communities, first and above all else. Yep. And that's uh, that's just part of being a, a responsible individual. You know, it doesn't mean you're a Rambo wannabe, although I'm sure there are those who would, would try to portray it as such. Um, let's let's talk, well, too, about you know the, the prospect of being prepared before bad things hit. Um, it seems to me that uh, there's always a tendency to scapegoat the people who prepared as hoarders and conflate them with sure. those who, who actually are, you know, buying up truckloads of toilet paper and then selling it back in inflated prices. Let's let's draw a distinction between those who prepare and those who take advantage. Well, sure. And it's of a piece with the way uh, saving uh, and being responsible financially is discouraged actively in this country, while profligacy and irresponsibility is rewarded. You know, right now we're dealing with a situation, inflation, the devaluation of money that punishes people who are prudent and save rather than spend money, whereas it encourages people to go into debt. Because why not? Your money's increasingly worth less. You might as well try and buy something with it while you still can, even if you have to go into hock. And it's a really infantile way, I think, to to regard the world and also other people. You know, that ultimately we should be responsible. That's one of the defining attributes of being an adult. And part of being responsible is making provisions for things that are likely to come to pass in the future. That includes saving money. That includes storing some food, for example, and supplies for contingencies. And it's really outrageous for people who uh, are unwilling to be responsible uh, to, uh, to, to disparage and attack those who are behaving responsibly. Here, here. And look, I, I don't want to spread fear. I don't want to make people feel panicked or uneasy about life in general, but... If, if, you're, if you're paying attention, there are some very clear warning signs, particularly in regards to the, the food system and the food supply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the amount of exports that used to come out of Ukraine that have not been coming out of there due to the conflict there is, is causing huge ripples throughout the world's food markets. And, you know, I, the, the unpleasant truth that I don't think a lot of people want to face is right now the abundance you see in your grocery store and at Costco – is from last year's harvest or last year's, it's last year's bounty. This fall is when a lot of people are going to find out that, uh, you know, all of these compiled disasters are beginning to add up. And and if you're not taking action now while there's still, you know, time to do so, you're going to be in a much worse situation when, when it finally dawns on everybody that, you know, there is a major disruption. Yeah, it's a double-pronged threat. I'm as concerned as I am about price as I am supply. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter if the stores are stocked if you can't afford to buy what's on the shelves, right? Very true. And, you know, we are getting to that point. You know, everybody knows it. You know, when you go to the store and the $100 bill is the new $20 bill, uh, it, it buys a bag of groceries to keep you, keep you going for a couple of days. And if you talk to people who are in the business of delivering food, and I know a number of these people, truckers and so on, uh, they're paying 1000 1500 even $2,000 now uh, to put diesel in their, in their tanks. And it's reaching a kind of event horizon of simple uh, math and improbability. In other words, there's no point in being a trucker anymore because it costs too much to put fuel in your vehicle uh, to make it up transporting whatever you put into your truck. And these guys are just going to simply shrug, to use the term that Ann Rand did in her book, Atlas Shrug. You know, when people just say, I'm not working anymore because there's no payoff to it. I'm not going, I'm not going to lose money by showing up in the morning and driving my truck and ending up at the end of the day with less money than I started out with. That's going to be devastating. 
for the food supply because practically everything that you see in the store comes to you via a diesel-powered truck. Yep. You have an excellent article on strategic debt that I would strongly encourage that, to, that our listeners take a look at. Um, tell me about uh, what's, what's the thought behind this article. Well, I've been giving thought to doing something that I never do, which is to uh, buy something in, uh, partially on, on, on debt, make payments on it, and that thing being a, a camper trailer. It's something I've always wanted to have. But now I'm thinking it's more than just an indulgence. Uh, it might be a good way in the first place um, <laughs> to, to uh, this is going to sound counterintuitive, save money by spending it. And that gets back into this whole business of our currency being devalued. Uh, if I have, let's say, $2,000 in the bank and I just let it sit there, at the end of the year, it's going to be worth 15% less. In effect, I took a 15% tax hike on that money, whereas maybe I should have used that money to buy something tangible that's of value. So there's that aspect to it. And then there's the other aspect about having literally like a bug out bag that's actually a small home that will allow me, uh, allow me and my girlfriend to get out of Dodge, you know, if we have to. And being realistic, you know, it's one thing to go backpacking for a weekend another thing to be out in the woods for weeks and weeks on end with nothing more than a bedroll and whatever you carry with you in your pack. Whereas this thing, you could, it's a little home. You could actually live in it. Not that expensive. It has solar power so it can work off grid. So I'm, I'm giving it serious thought. Well, I think that's that's the the kind of thinking that people should be looking at is what can I do to better that situation? I actually had someone ask me, one of, one of my listeners say, well, you know, Brian, you don't have a lot of faith in, uh, you know, the, the banking system, for instance, and people who have their money in the bank. And, you know, he's right. I kind of yeah. lean, I lean to, to people who turn their money into something that's tangible, that holds value, mm-hmm. whether that's farmable land, whether it's tools, whether it's precious metals, whatever it may be. I think they're going to be better off because it's very clear this the great reset that's being foisted upon us is largely an economic and financial one as well. And and it looks to me that for, for all intents and purposes, we are being herded into a financial prison of sorts, complete with digital currency and, you know, social credit scores to go along with. Yeah, it's foundationally, I think, a, a financial crisis. They, you know, by impoverishing people, by making people dependent, you control people. Uh, you know, ultimately, we need a place to stay. We need food. These are the basic needs that every human being has. And if you are utterly dependent for those basic needs on some external hierarchical system, they own you and they can do whatever they want to to you. The alternative being, okay, you starve and, and you know, you, you live outside in the rain and the cold and you die pretty quickly. Uh, and as far as trusting the banks, you think? I mean, do we have any reason uh, to actually put any faith in these institutions which approve themselves, like the pharmaceutical business, to be thoroughly saturated and suffused with corruption and to, become, to be profoundly untrustworthy? Yep, that's. Uh, I know that that probably seems harsh, especially if somebody's got a banker in the family. But it's the systems that we're talking about, and those systems, as we saw with the Canadian truckers' protest are very much yep. captured parts of, of government enforcement now and will be used and weaponized to punish people who hold unpopular or unapproved views. Without doubt. You know, we've experienced things that would have been inconceivable over the past three years in, in America before. And one of those things is this uh, possibility that, you know, A, they could simply uh, freeze and or seize the bank accounts of any wrong thinkable person. That was done in Canada. Uh, that sort of thing would have been just absolutely out of the park, crazy talk five years ago in, in this country, right? Well, it's not so crazy anymore. That's something that could absolutely happen. And another thing that could very readily happen is 
instead of 15% inflation, we could have 40, 50% inflation. We could be Venezuela. We could be Weimar Germany. It could happen within the next month or two. It's not an unrealistic or improbable scenario. Here, here, Eric, we're unfortunately up against the clock. Tell everybody where they can find your website. Sure. It's etautos.com, uh, the web's best libertarian gearhead site, because I think nobody else has a libertarian gearhead site. All right. And Eric's, Eric's got some great food for thought always, whether it's on things automotive or things pertaining to freedom. Eric, I appreciate you dropping by and uh, helping me keep my sanity as uh, we experience yet another week of Clown World. <laughs> and likewise, Brian, before our next chat. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a quick thank you to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are located in St. George, Utah, so anybody within about a 200-mile radius, maybe further... If you're serious about sewing, this is the one-stop place where you get the very best in uh, sewing machines, embroidery machines, long-arm quilting machines, starting, uh, you know, entry-level machines. You can get an entry-level sewing machine for under $200. Not a bad deal, right? I mean, if you've ever tried to sew anything by hand, those machines can save you a lot of time and effort. But if you really get creative, if you're very serious about projects like especially quilting, those long-arm quilting machines are something that have to be seen in order to be believed. And, of course, they have all the supplies. They service those machines, including if you bought your machine from somebody else, but you need to get it serviced, sewingandquiltingcenter.com is there to help you. They're located in St. George, Utah at 779 South Bluff Street. And Teresa and Eric Alsop are two of the finest people you will ever meet in your life. It's a family-owned business. Show them some love and let them take care of you. All right, let's take a moment here to, uh, to talk about what it meant to be vilified as the unvaccinated. It wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, it was about a little over a year ago, I think, that we really started to see the heat being turned up on the unvaccinated. And it was the last half of 2021 that really got tough. And I, I'm i not trying to play the victim here. I, I, I refused the jab. And, and the main reason I did was because there was such a concerted effort to push and to pressure and to coerce me and to punish me for not doing whatever government was telling me that uh, I I just was not going to go along with it. It's like, nope, you're pushing way too hard. This doesn't feel right when somebody is giving me this high pressure. I've seen used car salesmen that'd be like, whoa, dude, back off. <laughs> you're you're going to scare them away. But I guess scare was, was a big part of it. So with all that vilification that went on, and, you know, some of it was from officials, some of it was just from, you know, scared people who were believing that, well, the unvaccinated are the biggest risk among us. I mean, come on. The president himself talked about how last winter was going to be a winter of death and sickness for the unvaxxed. But every so often you encounter someone who realizes they were played and they were wrong. And they fess up to it and they say, you know what, I was wrong, I've changed my thinking. I came across this thread on Twitter, and thanks to the Unroll thread or the Thread Reader app, I have provided this in one nice, easy to read stop or easy, easy one stop 
read for you in my show notes. This was posted on Twitter by Ted Talk Soft. Says this is a powerful piece of writing from an Australian writer. The truth is out. What has been done to the people by media, governments, corrupt organizations, and technocrats is unforgivable. We are the many, they are the few, and never again should we allow them to divide us. And it's an, and, and then she shares an opinion piece from a vaccinated Australian writer. And this is what that writer said. If COVID was a battlefield, it would still be warm with the bodies of the unvaccinated. Thankfully, the mandates are letting up and both sides of the war stumble back to the new normal. The unvaccinated are the heroes of the last two years as they allowed us all to have a control group in the great experiment and highlight the shortcomings of the COVID vaccines. The unvaccinated carry as many battle scars and injuries as they are the people we tried to mentally break, yet no one wants to talk about what we did to them and what they forced the science to unveil. We knew that the waning immunity of the fully vaccinated had the same risk profile as the others within society, as the minority of the unvaccinated. Yet we marked them for special persecution. You see, we said they had not done the right thing for the greater good by handing their bodies and medical autonomy over to the state. Many of the so-called experts and political leaders in Australia admitted the goal was to make life almost unlivable for the unvaccinated, which was multiplied many times by the collective mob with the fight taken into workplaces, friendships, and family gatherings. Today, the hard truth is none of it was justified, as we took a quick slide, quick slide rather, from righteousness to absolute cruelty. We might lay the blame on our leaders and health experts for the push, but each individual within society must be held accountable for stepping into the well-laid-out trap. We did this despite knowing full well that principled opposition is priceless when it comes to what goes inside our bodies and we let ourselves be tricked into believing that going into another ineffective lockdown would be the fault of the unvaccinated and not the fault of the toxic policy of the ineffective vaccines. We took pleasure in scapegoating the unvaccinated because after months of engineered lockdowns by political leaders blinded by power, having someone to blame and to burn at the stake felt good. We believed we had logic, love, and truth on our side. So it was easy to wish death upon the unvaccinated. Those of us who ridiculed and mocked the non-compliant did it because we were embarrassed by their courage and principles. and didn't think the unvaccinated would make it through unbroken, and we turned the holdouts into punching bags. <clears throat> and here he names names. Lambie, Carr, Chant, Andrews, McGowan, Gunner, and the other cast of hundreds in prominent roles need to be held to account for vilifying the unvaccinated in public and fueling angry social media mobs. The mobs, the masked Nazis, and the vaccine disciples have been embarrassed by betting against the unvaccinated because mandates only had the power we gave them. It was not compliance that ended domination by big pharma companies, Bill Gates and his many organizations, and the World Economic Forum. It was thanks to the people we tried to embarrass, ridicule, mock, and tear down. We should all try and find some inner gratitude for the unvaccinated, as they as we took the bait by hating them. <laughs> excuse me, by hating them because their perseverance and courage brought us bought us time rather to see 
we were wrong. So if mandates ever return for COVID or any other disease or virus, hopefully more of us will be awake and see the rising authoritarianism that has no concern for our well-being and is more about power and control. And the writer finishes by saying the war on the unvaccinated was lost, and we should all be very thankful for that. Now, I realize, you know, by sharing this, it's, well, it sounds pretty self-congratulatory there, Bri. You know, <clears throat> I don't know that uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here because, frankly, this this was not something that I don't think I don't think anybody who resisted the vaccine was doing it because, hey, this is going to make me stand out. This is going to make me special. As much as I want to make it seem like, oh, yeah, well, of course, it was an easy choice. It was our personal autonomy. You know, it was our informed consent. Anybody would stand up for these things. But it was tough. Mentally. Resisting that uh, that push for vaccination was one of the toughest things that I've encountered. And and I feel like I've I've spent a good portion of my life, you know, trying to stay rooted in principle. I have a lot of good examples around me. And thank heavens for that. Because I don't know if on my own, I don't know if I'd be strong enough to do it. But thank heavens for the good examples who just simply drew the line and said, look, we're not going to go any further here. But that division that you saw, that was very real. And it, and it happened, not just, you know, in, in, in the workplace. I mean, look, how many people actually lost jobs because they refused to surrender their personal autonomy? And I get it if some people think, well, that's a stupid reason to lose your job. I mean, all you have to do is just take a little shot. You know, what are you so afraid of? Heard that many, many times. And I think the hardest part, and I'm just, I'm going to speak for myself. The hardest part psychologically is seeing something or at least believing that you see something clearly. And yet it seems like very, very few people are able to see it. And it really does make you stop and wonder, man, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I'm the one who's out of step here. And, of course, it, it didn't help that uh, the, the fear and the panic and the, you know, over-caution, well, we not only need to vaccinate everybody, but we should also make sure everybody's masked up as much as possible. That uh, played into the public's fears as well. And I, I, have, uh, I have a real strong feeling of contempt for much of the media, as well as many of the political and bureaucratic individuals who pushed hard to make that happen. You know, I know people who lost friendships. I know people whose families remain divided to this day over these issues, vaccination, mask mandates, and so forth. So if you're someone who has come to your senses and realized, my gosh, we were being played, look, I don't want to rub your nose in it. I don't want to, you know, ah, I told you so. I want to thank you for having the integrity to recognize, wow, that really was wrong. But I also want to encourage you, when the opportunity arises again, which I'm, I'm 99% sure it's going to, after all, those in power saw how well it worked the first time, I hope you will find the courage to stand with those who previously have stood and resist that coercion. The cool thing here is it doesn't take a, a majority of people. You don't need 50% plus one to, to know that you're doing the right thing. In fact, even if you're standing there all by yourself and you're doing the right thing and your conscience is at peace, well, that's a reward in itself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has been uh, one of my premier sponsors on this program for quite some time. And I relish when I hear from people who say, hey, we decided we were going to purchase a home or we decided to refinance our home loan. And they turn to the Heather Turner team. I appreciate those of you who do this and who support my sponsors. Um, Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage have been in the business for decades. So they bring a lot of experience to the table. And I know things are, are interesting now. There's still a you know, fairly hot real estate market. Still a lot of people relocating throughout the West. Even though interest rates are going up, you need someone on your side who has the expertise, the decades of experience, the clout of a company that can make that loan happen and do it in a timely fashion. If you want to reach out to Heather, you can call her at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So have you ever been assaulted with hard questions? I'm not talking about interrogated, you know, by the police or, you know, some uh, some enemy soldiers or something that have captured you. But as a parent, you're going to be assaulted with hard questions. I think uh, one of the one of the first times I remember this was when my oldest brought me a uh, I guess it was a little biology book, How the Human Body Works. She was maybe nine years old. She was pretty young, 10 maybe. And she brought me the book and she said, I have a question, Dad. And she unfortunately was on the chapter on reproduction. And I had pictured myself, well, you know, I'll just answer this, you know, as calmly and coolly and, you know, as efficiently as possible because this ain't no thing. It ain't going to phase me. But she then asked a really pointed question about human reproduction. And I was like, <laughs> deer in the headlights going, yeah, I don't know if I want to answer that. <laughs> it was all that coolness just kind of faded away. And I was like, yeah, this, this is one of those times. Go ask your mother. No, I, I, I did attempt to answer the question, but it was shocked me at how difficult it was. And, you know, that was just a matter of, of embarrassment. I kind of, I chided my parents because they were, they were very, very strict. You know, you don't ask questions about where babies come from. Oh, that's, that's not the kind of question you should, that a kid should be asking. So I think they, they kind of were from the generation of here, here's this book, almost 13, you know, that will, uh, will give you answers to, you know, human biology. But when you're a parent, you're going to be assaulted with hard questions. Paul Rosenberg has an excellent essay on this. And by the way, the hard questions he's talking about aren't necessarily just, you know, the where do babies come from kind of questions. Actually, these are some of the tougher questions that you might be be uh, required to ask or to answer rather for a kid who's who's trying to, you know, sort out right from wrong. And he says that's what's especially hard is that these are fundamental questions. And and the the tougher part is most of us lack fundamental solid answers for them. For instance, if a child were to say to you, well, why shouldn't I lie? It keeps me out of trouble. It helps me get what I want. Most parents wouldn't have a real answer. I mean, you can say, well, lying is a sin or lying is wrong, but that doesn't actually answer the question. It kind of steps around it, referencing an authority saying, don't do this. So again, it's a very fundamental question. Not having a clear answer to it, though, he says, is our problem. It shows us where we're living by dogma and not according to reason and reality. 
So having the perfect reason for everything is too hard of a job for us, he says, to be sure. And there are times when we have to rely upon something beside pure reason. But for fundamental questions asked by our children, Paul Rosenberg says we really should step up and find good answers. Now, fortunately, finding good answers isn't terribly hard. Once we stop, take time and come up with them. But that requires us to say, I'm sorry, I don't have a good enough answer for you right now. But I'll have one for you tomorrow. Now, see, that's honest. And that will actually teach your child to act honestly. So, take, for example, the question about lying. He says the first answer is simple enough. Well, the ability of everyone to get along and trust one another depends upon it. And if that fails, most everything else falls apart with it. And then from there, you can explain the necessity of trust between farmer and seed supplier, car maker and tire maker, and so forth. Then, if you wish... Then you can explain the necessity of why trust is why the old moral codes like the Ten Commandments make lying an offense, and that it was seen over long periods of time that bearing false witness caused disasters, or that God knew that destroying trust meant disaster. And he says, with that accomplished, you can begin examining the possibility of exceptions to the rule, white lies to save someone's feelings, and so on. From there, you can move into the problem of getting used to those, or getting used to telling those little lies, and then becoming false in a great many things. Again, ripping trust apart. Now he says we could still go deeper on this, how it affects us. That's a crucial issue. But he says I think you can see how small fundamental questions create hard work for a parent. And he says for that you have my condolences, but you got to do the job anyway. But he says remember you can always say. That's a hard one to answer. You're going to have to give me a few days for it. There's a little humility in that answer, too, which I think kids need to see. I mean, we want them to believe, yes, I am Superman and I have all the answers to everything. But when they see that uh, you have to learn as well, they'll cut you some slack. Now, Paul Rosenberg talks about a crucial component in answering these questions is to accept that life can be tragic and difficult. And to incorporate that concept into your answers. Now, he says, when I say tragic and difficult, I don't mean that we should be defeatist and moan and complain about things. He says, I honestly think we should feel and act triumphant rather than defeated. But there can be no question that life on this planet is difficult. And we have to accept that fact rather than trying to deny it. He says, I do think we can rise above a lot of the pains and hassles of earth life. But that's the result of heroism. And if we're to be honest, a not insignificant amount of it, of luck as well. Life life here, he says, is not fair and good people do suffer unjustly. So the truth is a primary reason why we must help one another through life. Without helping one another, we wouldn't be able to keep our heads above water, so to speak. We're running just a step or two ahead of tragedy. And if we start placing obstacles in front of one another, well, a whole lot of us will go underwater. Now, even if there was no tragedy on this planet, helping each other forward would still be necessary. It would move us ahead faster and better. But the tragic aspect of life makes it a far more pressing reality and necessity. So he says, here are just a few more of the tough questions along with brief first responses. And these are suggestions only. Dealing with your child in your circumstances is going to require your judgment and creativity. So if a child asks, Why do you get to tell me what to do? You can answer because it's our job to make you a good person. 
and because children are born knowing almost nothing. Parents have to do this. Now, by the time you're big, we won't tell you much of anything. You'll decide everything for yourself. For now, we're trying our best to get you ready for that. How about this one? Why can't I talk about poop? It's funny. Because grown-ups and even older children think it's kind of gross. If you talk about it while they're eating, it makes them feel yucky. And a lot of times it makes them feel yucky, even if they're not eating. I know it seems funny to you, but you're making things harder for them. Don't do that. How about, why do I have to use manners? He actually has a great essay specifically for that. Why can't I use bad words? Because it bothers people. People like to use such words because it makes them feel powerful, but it disrupts more important things, necessary things. And a lot of little interruptions can make real problems. So instead of distracting and disrupting people, try to keep things smooth for them. Those words tend to pull people away from better uses of their minds. And how about this one? Why can't I wear this? Now, this is usually an issue addressing provocatively. And one answer to the question is, again, because it disrupts people. Now, this is complicated, of course, by the fact that young women in particular need to feel like they can disrupt the attention of young men. So this question becomes double difficult in that case. You can explain that this isn't the right time or place to dress that way. Or maybe you need to swallow hard and admit that it is. Or maybe you need to find a middle way. He says, and so we see that parenting is not for the faint of heart. Improvise, adapt, and overcome. I really like his take on helping kids better understand the world without just giving them that that pat answer, because I said so. Because I'm the dad and you're not. And there are times where, unfortunately, you're going to have to pull rank and you're going to have to do that. There's Once in a while, that's just, you know, unavoidable. But I love that approach of when the kid asks you a tough question, or for that matter, if somebody else asks you a tough question. There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I don't have a good answer to that. Give me a day or two. Let me think about it. You know, some people won't do that because they're afraid they might look stupid. Well, you didn't have the answer right there on the tip of your tongue. Don't be that person. Set the pride aside. Give it some thought. Give them your best answer and be okay if they if they say, well, I don't know if I can accept that. Ah, growing up, ain't it fun? This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us for another session of of, uh, reveling in wrong think. I almost said wrestling in wrong think, but that sounds like it could cause some trouble. (laughs) Nevertheless, thank you for being a part of the show today. And thank you to my sponsors, Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I've got a link to every one of these businesses in my show notes. You can access them at the Brian Hyde Show. In fact, you might even consider subscribing to my show notes if you want to follow up on some of the various articles that I share throughout the week. A lot of good information out there. I spend my time trying to find 
good, thought-provoking content that will help you not only better understand the world around us, but also will inspire you to step up and make the difference that you were born to make. So with that said, let's, let's get started. You know, Marxism has made a great use of its long march through our institutions, especially our schools. And I think we see that more and more right now than, than ever before. You look at some of the things that are being pushed curriculum-wise and, and, you know, CRT and, of course, gender identity stuff and the, some of the really graphic books now that are being introduced into, into the young kids' schools just to, you know, to promote inclusivity and, and diversity. But, I mean, there's some really twisted, perverted stuff that people want to expose our kids to. And they get very defensive when people push back, when parents say, hey, I don't want my kid being indoctrinated like this. Well, who are you? You're not a professional. You're just a parent. You know, they almost spit as they say the word. Got a great article here from J.B. Shirk from AmericanThinker.com. To fight Marxist education, we need a new kind of school. He asks, what is the antidote to wokeism? The answer is knowledge. How do ordinary people resist the growing tyranny of state power? The answer is by questioning everything they're told. How can people being controlled fight back? By remembering that they alone control their thoughts. Now, J.B. Shirk says, look, you knew these answers without my help. Variations of them are entwined with our cherished cultural beliefs. Knowledge is power. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. And the truth will set you free. In the past, perhaps these idioms were too often seen as nothing more than inspirational bromides one might find embroidered on a decorative bookmark. Now, their gospel truths are strikingly clear. Stupidity breeds weakness. Obedience kills critical thinking. Ignorance invites enslavement. Wisdom ameliorates suffering. Imagine how much stronger America would be today if America's children understood these vital lessons. Now, he says that last point kind of gets to the nub of it, doesn't it? The educational establishment, much like the political establishment, is not invested in helping young minds grow. It's invested in placing children in small windowless boxes and slapping them back should their curiosity dare poke an occasional hole, exposing the illuminated world of knowledge just beyond their grasp. It is committed to preventing young minds from ever acquiring the essential tools necessary for unlocking limitless potential. It seeks good, woke soldiers, not true thinkers. Thinking is dangerous to any system of control. Asking why is the dirtiest of words in a system dependent upon intellectual conformity. Indoctrination, not enlightenment, is the game today. And those desperate to drink unquenchably from the cup of knowledge must sate their thirst away from the prying eyes of government-controlled institutions where wrong think is punished and groupthink is praised. Now, he says, not that I have anything against teachers, quite the opposite. Real teachers, those souls talented enough to awaken young minds to hidden knowledge, pursue a righteous calling. To those And those who understand that it's more important to teach a child how to think rather than what to think are force, are force multipliers for the good of any society. He says, whether a mentor to one or a lecturer before hundreds. Those who have been gifted the capacity to provide others not just rote knowledge, but also the tools for pursuing great wisdom are guided by the hand of God. 
I agree with him, by the way. I think that's absolutely the truth. The problem is that real teachers are just as much of a threat to any totalitarian system as real thinkers. In fact, they're more of a threat, for great teachers produce waves of great thinkers, many of whom mature to become teachers producing even more waves of thinkers for years to come. Just as depriving a field of its farmer deprives it of its harvest, depriving growing brains of pedagogical nourishment later or deprives later generations of their invaluable rewards. And he says the Marxists who have largely taken over the educational establishment don't want wise farmers with bountiful crops. They want intellectual deserts hostile to scholarly life and unfit for its growth. J.B. Shirk says to say the teaching profession has undergone a radical transformation the last four decades is an understatement. Gone are the days of teachers dressed in business attire being addressed with a sir or ma'am from mostly respectful students. Gone are the days when the teacher was always right and parents routinely took their side. Gone are the days when education was valued as a privilege to be earned. Gone are the days when it was once unthinkable to pass failing students from grade to grade. Gone are the days when prayer in school was considered not only acceptable, but also crucial for ensuring that steady moral and spiritual advancement beyond the attainment of raw knowledge fortified each student's academic journey. Now most schools have become big daycare centers where teachers have created have traded sports coats, ties, and dresses for the comfort of gym clothes, and curricula have traded rudimentary knowledge for woke pablum. Meaningless enrollments produce meaningless degrees conferred as meaningless achievements. The privilege of learning has been sidelined because the right to an education is now treated as a teacher's obligation rather than a student's opportunity. He says at some point during this great educational upheaval, teachers became little more than glorified babysitters expected to do the parenting that parents failed to do, simultaneously losing their authority over students, deferential respect from parents, and the professionalism once firmly established across their vocation. If you have ever known teachers who experienced this fundamental transformation of the schools firsthand, then you will have heard the sadness in their words as they lament what their profession has become. Now, he says the Marxists, to be sure, got what they sought, Successive generations of Americans bereft of the building blocks necessary to comprehend that they'd been cheated of basic knowledge. Those with no understanding of history lack the acumen to steer the future. Those deprived of great literature remain ill-prepared for complex ideas or weighty emotions. Those who don't first train their minds with the foundations of mathematic and logic lose their potential to build anything new. To create automatons incapable of dissent or resistance... The Marxists simply destroyed education. And the unsavory result has been that America is now a nation of people with many titles and degrees, but diminished capacity for critical thought and reflection. Just as Congress and the White House work today to disarm Americans of their constitutionally protected firearms, the successive governments behind the Department of Education's demolition of public schooling have disarmed too many Americans of their potential for reason and rationality. Anyone who doubts that unassailable truth need only look around to see a society unable to distinguish men from women, alleviate its existential angst over ridiculously ludicrous tales of climate apocalypse, or comprehend that the very people who speak endlessly of saving democracy or fighting fascism are the same ones destroying democratic institutions and promoting the state's totalitarian ideology. So where do we go from here? 
Well, he says, at the risk of sounding too optimistic, I'd say now is the time for the free thinkers, rebels, and iconoclasts to unleash hell and spread knowledge as never before. Not all education takes place in school, after all. Some might say, in fact, that no real education can take place entirely in school. It's forgotten sometimes that before America declared its independence from Britain, American colonists first spent years creating their own kind of open classroom for education and debate. Among the most important institutions permitting them to communicate political ideas was what we might call the online school of their day, the Committees of Correspondence. Those committees formed throughout the colonies allowed towns to formally debate contentious ideas while rallying support among each other. In an age before mass communication, they were instrumental for providing the general public with a political education beyond the control of the British Empire. That's a little like what we do here, right? Writers, readers, and commentators hash out the big ideas of the day in a forum unrestrained so far by government censorship, by our very own Committee of Correspondence. Because the educational institutions of our day have chosen to attack free speech and free thought, those of us who understand what's happening have found other means to communicate. It's an important and necessary step for reclaiming lost liberties. After all, knowledge is power. Powerful ideas change minds, and a little bit of wisdom is stubbornly contagious. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, good to have you on the show with us. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And a special shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. Located in St. George, Utah, you can go to his website at DixieCairo.com. A couple of specials I would like you to consider. Just, uh, you know, on the off chance that you or someone you know is uh, dealing with or struggling with, say, neuropathy. Here's a $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. Again, that's at DixieCairo.com. Bulging herniated discs. How about the $99 intro special? Two treatments plus massage. Just get in touch with Dr. Ward Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic. That's DixieCairo.com. And tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. So in talking about uh, Marxist education, I know that uh, people, well, you know, what are you trying to say here, Brian, that there's, there's uh, you know, commies under every bush? All right. I know that uh, the John Birchers used to get kind of a bum rap for pointing out, you know, all the, the places where the communists were infiltrating. But you know what? Looking at some of the places they were warning about, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, I have to say, the, the Birchers weren't wrong. They may have been a little strident, but they sure weren't wrong. And our classrooms seem to be one of those places where hardcore Marxist ideology is becoming normalized. I mean, California in particular. That's, that is one state I can think of where you will have teachers who are openly Marxist, bragging about, I'm here to train up little revolutionaries. Now, once in a while, once in a great while, one of those teachers will say that in front of a camera, get called out, and sometimes even be let go. But for the most part, it's been a very steady and gradual process. And, and just as an example, just to kind of show you, well, well, what might that look like? 
by the way, I want to tip my hat to Mark McSpadden for sharing this with me. Mark, thank you so much for for uh, for sharing this article. This is from LibertySentinel.org. Coming soon to Minnesota, teachers must demonstrate a Marxist worldview to obtain their teaching license. This is by Alan and Julie Quist, who write, Marxist ideology and practices are coming to Minnesota schools disguised as new teacher licensing rules. Now, the Minnesota Teacher Licensing Board is called the Professional Educators Educators Licensing and Standards Board, or PELSB. Each board member was appointed by Governor Waltz, and PELSB is fast-tracking new teacher licensing requirements. Now, these new standards will embed basic Marxist principles and practices such as critical race theory, fluid sexual identity, and gender politics into all Minnesota schools. Standard Marxist practices and dogma divide people into opposing groups so that students and teacher must view themselves not as individuals but as members of groups, oppressor groups or oppressed groups. And oppressed groups must be liberated from the exploitation of their oppressors. Well, that is, after all, the essence of Marxism, isn't it? When formally adopted, the new requirements must be met to become or to remain licensed to teach in Minnesota. Now, this includes teaching in early childhood family education from prenatal on, as well as adult basic education. Rule draft RD 4615. Now, since non-public schools generally hire licensed teachers, these standards will apply to them as well. So they list out some of the new licensing standards and they they bracket their commentary on the meaning and significance of the standards. But listen to this and tell me this doesn't sound like the long march through the institutions just continuing on through the the teaching ranks in Minnesota. The requirements include helping students develop social identities based upon their social grouping. What this means is group identities will usurp individual identities. The teachers will be required to comply with the construct of multiple identity formation. This means they must identify which identity groups a student belongs to, the scale of power assigned to each identity group, and how their identities intersect. Yeah, good old intersectionality. They must also incorporate social and emotional learning into all classes. Now, SEL seeks to transform the values, attitudes, and beliefs of students and achieve full compliance with equity and gender ideology. Teachers also will be required to understand systemic trauma, including racism and micro and macro aggression. So they presume that trauma has been inflicted upon victims from the oppressor classes. They also will have to be inclusive to reflect diversity of cultures. This means teachers will have to affirm homosexuality, transgenderism, sexual identity, in other words, gender is a choice, not biology, and the absence of moral standards for sexual practices which will set the stage for the normalization of pedophilia. Also, teachers will be required to fully affirm and incorporate identity politics into the school, including race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, economic status, and ethnicity. They'll be required to focus on implicit bias and systemic racism, including white privilege. 
Teachers will be required to prioritize materials from traditionally marginalized voices that offer diverse perspectives on race, culture, language, gender, sexual identity, religion, nationality, migrant refugee status, and other identities traditionally silenced or omitted from the curriculum. In other words, identity politics will drive curriculum content. They'll be required to teach materials that empower learners to be agents of social change and promote equity. Now, equity means required equal outcomes, not equal opportunity. Marx put it this way, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Teachers are required to train students in social activism through service learning, to connect students with local and global political activists, They're required to understand that Minnesota's laws were created to oppress by race, class, gender, sexual orientation, language, and nationality. Well, there it is. That is the Marxist interpretation of history through presumed identity group power. They'll be be required to understand white supremacy and how racism operates institutionally. Again, here's the Marxist assumption that our institutions are fundamentally racist and oppressive. They'll also be required to understand ethnocentrism and and Eurocentrism as undermining equity. Eurocentrism and ethnocentrism form the core of America's cultural, religious, and political heritage, and they're presented as being racist and oppressive. Young people will be stripped of their history and instead be told their heritage is oppressive, racist, white, and heteronormative. So every CRT and gender fluid buzzword is embedded into these teaching standards and they're required to be incorporated into the instruction. Now, if you know anything about uh, modern political correctness or cultural Marxism, as it's often called, it was Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci who hatched the idea of taking Marxism out of the economic and political realm and putting it into the cultural realm. And that's something we've seen happen over the last few generations. He was part of the Frankfurt School back in the early 20th century, but Gramsci said that people are trapped in a prison house of language. Does that sound like our time? Are you using my correct pronouns? Those are iron bars of that prison house of language. Because language determines how people think. And so Gramsci emphasized we must change the language of the culture in order to usher in the Marxist revolution. So in summary, the new licensing standards would force every Minnesota teacher and school to become Marxist revolution indoctrination centers. And it's time the public was informed about what's going on. Again, this is from Alan and Julie Quist. Alan is a former three-term Minnesota state legislator, and Julie Quist is a board chair for the Child Protection League. But... This isn't just happening in Minnesota. This is happening in other places as well. And even even in uh, an area like where I live, in rural Idaho, this stuff creeps in. It becomes institutionalized. It's part of the structure of the system. I mean, we're really reaching the point where I think parents who are concerned, you know, about, well, I don't want my kids being taught that. What should I do? Should I go show up at the school board meeting? Well, you could. I mean, you know, you risk being labeled as an extremist or domestic terrorist. In my opinion, the parents who are really serious about uh, snatching their kids away from Marxist indoctrination are going to pull their kids out of school and homeschool them. Just my opinion. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be the brainchild and the business of my friend Spencer Worthington. And yes, they create high quality new and remanufactured ammunition in popular calibers. I just, uh, I love Spencer because of his commitment to helping other people discover the joy of gaining skill at arms. And it's a good thing. I mean, it teaches responsibility. It's a great way to have recreation. It's a practical skill in that it can be used to defend home and hearth or put food on the table. There's a lot of pushback against this kind of thinking today, but, you know, I'm grateful for people like Spencer who take it seriously and, in fact, uh, not only take it seriously, but have, have created a company that provides the means to get out there and attain skill at arms. HSL Ammo. If you find yourself in need of some ammunition, if you're in the St. George, Utah area, you can go and buy it from him directly, or you can go online to their website. I've got a link in my show notes. It'll take you right to them. Well, I don't know if you saw, you probably heard, but uh, yes, Dr. Fauci has been diagnosed with COVID. I haven't mentioned this till today, mainly because I didn't want to come off as gloating, like, ah, you know, serves him right. But it's telling. That the, the, the science, the man who embodies science, despite all of his, uh, you know, being jabbed and boosted and masked and, you know, knowing everything that there is to know about COVID, now he has it. And Fauci finally getting COVID is a fairly significant thing. I think you might appreciate Jeffrey Tucker's take on this. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, says, What precisely happened in the month of February 2020, when Anthony Fauci and cohorts were plotting their pandemic response, is still a mystery. Jeremy Farrar of the Welcome Trust, in his book on the topic, says that during these weeks they went to burner phones, clandestine video calls, and warned family members that something terrible could happen to them. Their top concern was the possibility of the lab leak from Wuhan. They needed to get to the bottom of it and prepare the spin. Jeffrey Tucker says, we know that the initial draft of the academic article denying the lab leak came out February 4th of 2020, later published in The Lancet on March 16th. But what happened in these three weeks, apart from the mid-February NIH junket to China to learn how to control a virus, remains foggy. But this much we do know. By March 2nd of 2020, Fauci had his game plan lined up. Michael Gerson of the Washington Post wrote him on the day, on that day rather, and asked about the purpose of social distancing. Now this was weeks before most Americans had even heard this euphemism for forced human separation. Was the idea to wait for a vaccine, Gerson asked? Fauci answered in a private email as follows, quote, Social distancing is not really geared to wait for a vaccine. The major point is to prevent easy spread of infections in schools, closing them, crowded events such as theaters, st- stadiums, cancel events, workplaces, do teleworking where possible. The goal of social distancing is to prevent a single person who is infected to readily spread to several others, which is facilitated by close contact in crowds. Close proximity of people will keep the RO higher than one and even as high as two to three. If we can get the RO to less than one, the epidemic will gradually decline and stop on its own without a vaccine, end quote. That's Dr. Fauci's words, by the way. And again, this was from his uh, email to Michael Gerson from the Washington Post. Now, there we have it. 
That's the Fauci theory of how to get rid of the virus. We don't need a vaccine. Just close things. Stay away from people. Don't gather. Shut schools. Lock businesses and churches. All people stay away from all people. The r not will drop. Then the virus will, and this is where the theory gets murky. Does it just vanish, get bored, get frustrated and give up and vanish into the ether? And how long does this new system of social distancing have to last? Years? Forever? And what happens once people start acting normally again? Jeffrey Tucker says, look, this is very clearly crank science, one that confuses ex post data collection with causation itself and also seems to deny the workability of the human immune system. That such things would be written by a person in Fauci's position is truly mind-boggling. But the press went along, and they still do after all this time. What Fauci was imagining, and very few people picked up on it at the time, was the construction of a new social system. It wasn't just about the virus. It was about all pathogens and the whole functioning of society. He believed, or he decided to come to believe, that a re-engineering of the social order could successfully beat back common pathogens and bring about universal health. And he finally revealed this in his August 15th, 2020 article for Cell that received very little attention at all. He was on his own attempting to implement an entire new social system based on a new ideology. Again, here's Dr. Fauci's words, quote, Living in greater harmony with nature will require changes in human behavior as well as other radical changes that may take decades to achieve. Rebuilding the infrastructures of human existence, from cities to homes to workplaces to water and sewer systems, to recreational and gatherings venues. In such a transformation, we will need to prioritize changes in those human behaviors that constitute risks for the emergence of infectious diseases. Chief among them are reducing crowding at home, work, and in public places, as well as minimizing environmental perturbations such as deforestation, intense urbanization, and intensive animal farming. End quote. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this article reveals the most important point. The pandemic response was not just about this one pathogen. It was about what amounts to a political, social, economic, and cultural revolution. It's not socialism or capitalism. It's something else entirely, something very strange, like a Rousseauian technocracy, simultaneously primitive and high-tech, as managed by a scientific elite, an untested dystopia worthy of the most terrifying literature in the English language. But here's the key. No one has voted for such a thing. It's something Fauci and his friends dreamed up on their own, and deployed all their enormous power to enact just as a test until it fell apart. The U.S. and many parts of the world were in their grip for the better part of a year and two years in some places. Jeffrey Tucker says this is a scandal for the ages, one that far outstrips issues of tax-funded gain-of-function research, as important as that is. It's even more important that reports that Fauci has been earning personal royalty payments from pharmaceutical companies that receive grants that he has personally approved. So the real problem comes down to his power and the ability of elected representatives and courts to control him for many decades. Now, regardless of of Fauci's millenarian vision, the course of the virus took the usual path, but for one major exception. The waves of infection occurred based on class rank in society, 
There was a political hierarchy of infection that started with the working classes, moved on to the bourgeoisie, hit the professional classes, and then the high-end journalists. And finally, at the very end, came for the elite ruling class itself. Trudeau, Saki, Arden, Gates, and finally, Fauci, regardless of their multiple vaccines. And here's why Fauci's COVID infection is significant. 28 months after the first lockdowns, it's a sign and symbol that his entire theory of virus control was wrong. He got his way with policy and it did not work. The virus finally landed on him as if to reenact Edgar Allan Poe's fictional story of Prince Prospero in his castle that he believed would protect him. As a result of his exposure, Fauci will surely, unless his repeated injection of the same vaccine harmed the operation of his immune system, gain the natural immunity that's already possessed by 78% of kids and likely two-thirds of the general population. But Jeffrey Tucker says it should also alert us to three points of moral certainty. Actually, moral urgency. We need to replace Fauci-style feudalism with a new theory of how to reconcile the freely functioning society with the presence of infectious disease so that neither he nor people in his pay or sway can attempt this again. Secondly, we need to disable the unmitigated power of administrative state bureaucrats to seize control of the machinery of government. And third, we need a new system to decentralize science away from the privileged elites so they can never again have monopoly control over what is considered to be the science, much less possess the, po- the power to censor dissent. Jeffrey Tucker says these are the lessons, or at least the start of them. This virus is either endemic or at least almost so. But we are left with astonishing social, cultural, and economic destruction from Fauci's attempt to implement an experimental plan on the whole population, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. He says we will suffer for generations from it, and yet in the end, infection is individual and probably unavoidable for most people. The immune system adapts. That's how we evolved to coexist, and to pretend otherwise is the very essence of denying the science. Maybe you understand now why I regard Jeffrey Tucker as one of the really, truly, uh, I was going to say authoritative, but I'm really not into the whole authoritarian thing. But he's, he's truly one of those voices who I think has proven out to be calm, rational, and very well informed on this subject. You ought to check out uh, the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. You'll find a lot of other great content like that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Want to give a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. It's really hard some days as I see the news headlines and I see that we're closing in on 100 different big food manufacturing facilities or plants that have been shut down or suffered a catastrophic fire or other, you know, calamity. They're just, it seems to me that there is something very engineered about uh, the food shortages that are shaping up. And I saw actually a headline yesterday. I want to share this one with you real quick. A friend tweeted this to me, and uh, and it was very eye-catching in that it's talking about uh, the the lack of exports from Ukraine. 
So a 40% collapse in actual harvest and an 80% roughly, roughly an 80% collapse in harvest reaching the export market. When this starts to hit in earnest in fall, it's going to be really big and destabilizing globally. I mean, that's uh, so far Ukraine has exported 4 million tons in the last four months versus usual monthly exports of 5 to 6 million tons. So this is a worldwide thing. And if you're not preparing, this is my point, if you're not preparing and getting some things set aside for yourself, or for that matter, gaining the skills or the tools and and the things that you'll need to to produce more of your own food, I think it's going to become very important, something that uh, will likely be occurring to a lot of people toward the end of this year. I'm sorry if that sounds gloom and doom, but... I'd rather I'd rather warn and be wrong than not say something for the sake of well I don't want to make anybody you know feel bad or otherwise be concerned. Now I think it's it's time to to pay attention. This is a possibility that uh, we could be facing some worldwide food shortages. Life-saving food has some great uh, alternatives to sitting there going hungry. Maybe you should check them out. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. So I wanted to, in case you wanted a second opinion here on Dr. Fauci's illness, John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education, another voice that I have really come to trust on issues like this, he has a take that I think is worth considering. He says, and this is his take on why it matters that Fauci got COVID-19. Miltimore says, I recently returned from a week-long vacation in the north woods of Wisconsin. We played beach volleyball, went fishing and boating, had a lively game of wiffle ball with the kids, and swam until our skin was prune-like. Even without a cell phone, he says, I managed to stumble on a bit of breaking news from an unusual source, television. It was virtually the only media I had up there. Naturally, I had to share this bit of news. So he uh, told his uh, companions, hey, Fauci has covid and a discussion quickly broke out whether over whether the news was relevant. So what? A friend responded. I accepted a long time ago that everyone's going to get this thing. Now, John Miltimore says, you know, I partly agreed with my friend. Even during the early stages of this pandemic, I harbored suspicions that the virus was going to spread, regardless of any interventions politicians or bureaucrats enacted, and those interventions could prove to be destructive, perhaps more destructive than the virus itself. But I told him not to underestimate the importance of Fauci contracting COVID. And here's why it matters. He says it's important to understand Fauci isn't just the president's top medical advisor. Fauci, whose official title is director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, is America's doctor, as the New Yorker described him in April 2020. More importantly, for better or worse, Fauci became the architect of the U.S. COVID response. It was Fauci who, early in the pandemic, proposed a COVID strategy that was simultaneously radical and simple. Keep Americans apart from one another, using state force if necessary. In March of 2020, Fauci told Face the Nation that the strategy was working. He said, this kind of mitigation issues that are going, the kinds of mitigation issues that are going on right now, the things that we're seeing in this country, this physical separation at the same time as we're preventing an influx of cases from coming in, I think that's going to go a long way to preventing us from becoming an Italy. Now, the mitigations Fauci was referring to were lockdowns, schools closed, parks closed, businesses closed, any enterprise or activity not deemed essential by state authorities was illegal. 
and Americans were told that these efforts were only temporary. Fifteen days to slow the spread, that became the national mantra. Six months later, however, nothing had changed. In fact, Fauci was now saying it would have to continue until 2022. John Miltimore says the idea that humans could hide indefinitely from an airborne pathogen if government bureaucrats just turned the dial just right has more than a touch of madness to it. But what few seem to realize is that for Fauci, this was just the first first step in a larger revolution. And he quotes uh, from the same article uh, in Cell magazine written by Fauci that Jeffrey Tucker was quoting in his article where Fauci talks about living in greater harmony with nature will require changes in human behavior as well as other radical changes that may take decades to achieve. And he backs up, just as Tucker did. Fauci's pandemic response wasn't just about COVID. It was about a larger technocratic revolution that was hard to define and, most importantly, was not one that Americans had signed up for. Nobody voted for this. This is what makes Fauci's infection, which comes more than two years after the first lockdowns were so Im- were imposed, so important. It's a sign and symbol that Fauci's entire theory of virus control was wrong. He got his way with policy, but it didn't work. Now, John Miltimore says... In his 1974 Nobel Prize acceptance speech, the economist F.A. Hayek concluded with a warning, and that was he urged humans to act humbly with the immense power of modern science. Hayek said, quote, There is danger in the exuberant feeling of ever-growing power which the advance of the physical sciences has engendered, and which tempts man to try, dizzy with success, to use a characteristic phrase of early communism, to subject not only our natural but also our human environment to the control of a human will. Now, Hayek continued, the recognition of the insuperable limits to his knowledge ought indeed to teach the student of society a lesson of humility, which should guard him against becoming an accomplice in men's fatal striving to control society, a striving which makes him not only a tyrant over his fellows, but which may well make him the destroyer of a civilization, which no brain has designed but which has grown from the free efforts of millions of individuals. End quote. So John Miltimore concludes, A careful look at Dr. Fauci reveals that humility is not one of his stronger attributes, and his actions show the fatal conceit that Hayek warned against infects public health officials as well as economic planners. So despite all his efforts, Fauci was no more successful in avoiding the plague than Prince Prospero. But his mad, arrogant effort to extinguish the virus through force is a tale worthy of its own parable. What was the saying about in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established? Okay, well, here's two very solid witnesses. Now, granted, one of them is citing the other, but I think that uh, the conclusion here is be very careful before you put your trust in either Dr. Fauci or other public health officials to apply the one-size-fits-all, you know, approach. I remember Jeffrey Tucker very clearly illustrating early on in the days of, uh, of the lockdowns that this was a departure from the way that, uh, that viruses and pandemics, for that matter, had been addressed for generations. It was understood these viruses will spread 
You protect the vulnerable as best you can. And in, in this case, it wasn't a big secret about, well, we don't know who's vulnerable. It could be anybody. Right? It could be that three-year-old. It could be, you know, this healthy 25-year-old. No. It was primarily people who were elderly and with one or more comorbidities, people whose immunity had been compromised. And that's why even those people who got it, you know, if you, if you didn't fall into one of those two categories, well, there was like a 99.7% survival rate. It's, it's ridiculous. And now the really inconvenient thing, and this is, this is the part where I think uh, Dr. Fauci and many others probably want to step very lightly. How can we explain all of these uh, otherwise healthy young people dying suddenly? I mean, I know the easy thing is, well, we blame it on the vaccination. And look, I don't know that it's the vaccination, but if you look at the insurance actuarial tables, you are starting to see a pattern emerge where the deaths of people between 18 and 60 years of age, those are prime working years, have inexplicably risen. And I don't mean by, well, you know, a few percentage points. There's some, you know, some anomalies here. We're talking a 40% increase in these deaths. Now, maybe it's premature to say, well, that's because of the vaccine. But you think, what what is so prevalent now in billions of people's lives that wasn't there two years ago? I don't know how it's going to shake out, but uh, that's a, that's a topic worth keeping your eye on. Because if it turns out the vaccine is actually doing more harm than good, who will be held accountable for it? This is The Brian Hyde Show.